Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And by the time this publishes, it's going to be a little bit after St. Patrick's Day and just a little bit before Easter. So I figured that is perfect timing to discuss the Irish revolutionary and English trader, Sir Roger David Casement. And Casement's story really involves much more than just treason or patriotism, which are, of course, interesting subjects on their own. The listener who suggested it to us wrote that it also includes, quote, war, espionage, adventure, gay history, and worldwide firsts in human rights on three continents. And then add to that friends like podcast regular Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, enemies like podcast regular King Leopold II, and ex-friends like Joseph Conrad, plus an exhumation and a reputation that's still debated today, nearly 100 years after his execution. So that's a lot of stuff. It is. So in this episode, we'll talk about the dual identities of Roger Casement, his career as a crusading diplomat of Britain, his disgrace as a German collaborator in World War One, and the secret diaries that very likely cost him his life. The interesting thing to me about Casement, though, is that the duality that characterizes his life really started quite early. He was born September 1st, 1864, near Dublin, to a family with a very long history of military or civil service to the British crown. His father, for example, was a pensioned army captain who had moved the family around Ireland, England, and Europe, just kind of looking for cheap rent and a good climate because he was in poor health. Casement's father was also Church of Ireland, and he raised his sons to be Protestant. But Casement's mother was Catholic, and when he was only three years old, she had him and his brothers baptized Catholic in secret, though. So that's the first main duality, I think, in Casement's upbringing and eventually his life. By his teens, Casement was orphaned, and he spent the rest of his youth in Ulster and in Liverpool, where he began working as a clerk for an English-based shipping company. At 19, his work first took him to West Africa, which is where he joined the falsely benevolent African International Association, run by Leopold II, King of the Belgians. And that was, just to remind you, Empress Carlota's brother and Queen Victoria's cousin. So he pops up in podcasts from time to time, too. Yes, you may remember him. And this job had Casement reporting to a governor general installed by none other than Henry Morton Stanley. So a lot of regular names. Kind of the Kevin Bacon, I think, of our podcast, it seems. (laughs) um, Casement's later work in Africa involved all sorts of work, British consular business, surveys of the Lower Congo, organizing shipping transportation. And that last job, the Shipping Transportation Organization, was something that introduced Casement to the writer Joseph Conrad in 1890. And Conrad had, of course, arrived in the Congo to captain a Belgian steamer, and Casement was there arranging the transport service. And the two wound up spending several weeks together. And Conrad's initial almost awestruck assessment of Casement was one that really stuck, one that you'll see uh, referring to Casement pretty frequently. It was... I can assure you that he is a limpid personality. There is a touch of the conquistador in him, too, for I have seen him start off into an unspeakable wilderness, swinging a crook-handled stick for all weapon. He could tell you things, things I have tried to forget, things I never did know. 
So we need to stop and talk about this Conrad Association for a second, because there are probably already alerts going off in your head with the mention of both the Congo and Joseph Conrad. And that quote probably set off a few more. Especially the end there. Right. According to Julie F. Kodal, author of Imperial Co-Histories, some of those trips into the interior directly inspired scenes in Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness. Some have even speculated that Casement partly inspired the character of Kurtz. Although, to be fair, apparently there are a lot of inspirations behind Kurtz, but uh, you can see certain comparisons between that character and this man. But we shouldn't make Casement sound too much like a tough guy, though, because according to an article by Robert Burroughs in the Journal of Imperial and Commonwealth History, his writings from these early years in Africa, you know, before he was uh, working as a consul, uh, really set him apart from guys like Stanley. And there are a few reasons behind that. One is that he freely acknowledges his misadventures, like, for instance, when he was attacked by a swarm of bees, not just a natural swarm of bees, bees used as a as a biological weapon, I suppose. Another main difference, and this is one Conrad emphasized, too, is that Casement kind of relished his lack of firearms almost. And it was something that he believed made him more popular with the local people. And then a final reason, which having read a little bit of Stanley's work too, something that really makes Casement stand apart is he freely acknowledged help he received from people and how much, um, how much he was reliant on that help. Another thing that set him apart, he seemed to have left his various posts in Africa sort of jumping around, partly because of the violence that he saw inflicted by his colleagues. So he wasn't willing to, to stay put after he saw something. Exactly. By 1900, he was put in charge of setting up a British consulate in the Congo. By this point, King Leopold II and his Congo Free State were on worldwide watch due to charges of human rights atrocities and slavery. Heart of Darkness had recently been published as a series and more than a few people were noticing that considering how much was exported from the Congo, there really wasn't much besides weapons going in. So finally, public attention got hot enough for the British Foreign Office to send Casement on a trip to the interior in 1903, and he outlined those atrocities that were taking place, women, children, elders, and chiefs all being held hostage, for example, while young men were sent into the jungle to collect rubber, and there were mass shootings of those who who refused to do the work and mutilations. I mean, I think that's probably the most famous atrocity associated with the Congo. You'll see pictures of little children who've had hands, arms, and feet cut off to force their parents to go into the jungle and collect rubber. When his report went public, it caused a huge stir. Eventually, Leopold was forced to sell his private interest to Belgium in 1908, and that marked the end of the worst atrocities. Meanwhile, though, across the globe, a newspaper man was starting to publish all these stories about similar atrocities committed against another indigenous rubber-gathering population, this time in the Putumayo River region of the Amazon rainforest. And the land in question where these atrocities were supposedly taking place was controlled by the London-based Peruvian Amazon Company, which exported rubber from Peru to Britain. So, so 
that was kind of buzzing. People were getting concerned about that. But when further claims of abuse from workers from Barbados who were working in Peru, but were, of course, British subjects, started to trickle in, the Anti-Slavery and Aborigines Protection Society got involved in the whole thing. And the organization eventually pressured the British government to form a team of corporate investigators head down to the the site where the atrocities were, or the region where the atrocities were believed to be taking place, and examine the claims, find out if there was truth behind them. So Casement, with his already stellar human rights record, he seemed like the perfect man to represent the government in this investigation. So in 1908, he had been made consul in Rio de Janeiro, and in 1910, he started work on exposing the atrocities of the Peruvian Amazon Company and its president, the incredibly wealthy Julio Cesar and what he found was as bad, if not worse, than what he found in the Congo. Forced cannibalism, gang rape, beheadings, and floggings, just for minor infractions. Children were regularly put into stocks. And Casebit gathered all this information, and he backed up his work with photos even, plus affidavits from the Barbadian workers who were basically treated as indentured servants. And just like with the Conge report, he put it all together, and it was eventually published as the Putumayo report, or the Blue Book. And when it was published, there was kind of a long delay, actually, while officials in England were trying to figure out what they were going to do about it, since this, after all, was a uh, London-based company. Um, but once it did finally get out there, it had a similar effect as the Congo report, at least initially. The company was forced into liquidation, and Casement even told a friend, quote, I have blown up the devil's playground in Peru. I told you I should, and I have done it. He was knighted after that, and then he resigned from service due to his health, and after that, it was back to Ireland. So while Casement was accepting these honors, he was also publishing anti-British essays. So you might find that a little bit confusing, but the disconnect between his service on behalf of the empire and his increasing desire for Irish independence really isn't quite as great as it seems. He simply saw the Irish as another oppressed people. He even wrote the, quote, white Indians of Ireland are heavier on my heart than all the Indians of the rest of the earth. And I read an article by Richard Kirkland in the Irish Studies Review that even noted this sympathetic understanding of oppression may have been what motivated him in his diplomatic or his human rights work in the first place. He quotes Casement as saying, the more we love our land and wish to help our people, the more keenly we feel we cannot turn a deaf ear to suffering and injustice in any part of the world. So either way you look at it, the um, work with uh, people in the Congo and the Amazon influencing his later feelings about Ireland or the other way around. He certainly turned into a, a ardent Irish Republican. Initially, though, Casement kept the focus domestic, helping to form the Irish National Volunteers in late 1913. He also wrote open letters urging Irish not to fight in what seemed like an approaching world war. But by July 1914, he was looking for even more aggressive ways to pit Ireland against England. And so he traveled to New York City to meet with the German consular officials there. He hoped to secure, by doing this, um, German support for an Irish revolt, something that would divert England's attention from the continent and create a two-front war. 
So from that point, Caseman actually traveled on to Germany by way of neutral Norway for further talks. So from that point, once he was in Germany, it was uh, agreed that the German government would help support Irish independence and even allow Caseman to raise an all-Irish brigade from Irish prisoners of war who were detained in Germany. Um so Casement was enthusiastic about that. Unfortunately for him, though, the Irish POWs were not so enthusiastic. He could only get 53 volunteers interested. And, um, I mean, I was trying to imagine how this would have gone down. And to me, it doesn't really seem that surprising that after you were being held a prisoner of war by the Germans, you might not want to join them. But, I mean, I- I'm sure there were other concerns at play for these POWs. So, Raising troops eventually turned into another enterprise, and that was gun running. And by mid-February, when the Germans got word that the Irish were going to plan a rising on Easter 1916, they agreed to send some weapons to help. 25,000 Russian rifles and one million rounds, maybe even some German-trained officers, all, of course, to support the Irish. And again, like you just mentioned, to create a two-fronted war, uh, divert England's attention. But the problem was 25,000 rifles sounds like a lot, but Caseman realized at the time that it was the most the Germans were going to be able to do, and it wasn't going to be enough to support their rising. So he asked the German authorities to send him back off to Ireland on a U-boat, and he was hoping to stop the rising before it was too late. Except the British had already been aware of a lot of what was going on all along, and upon landing, Casement was arrested that same day. The Royal Navy captured the armed ship, which had missed its rendezvous point as well. So at this point, Casement is looking at gun running, negotiating with Germany, trying to raise troops against England, all signs which clearly point to treason. And there really wasn't that much of a defense for him, except that Casement believed Ireland was an independent country and he had been acting as an ambassador. Basically, um, England had no rights over him. So, of course, just days after his capture, though, the rising had taken place anyway. So it really looked bad uh, from from his perspective. It looked more like he had come home to help lead the rising rather than try to stop it. So not good at all for his defense. And according to John Campbell in History Today, Casement initially didn't even want to offer a defense, but he was ultimately convinced to do so and argue the case on technicalities. And Campbell further suggests that during peacetime, Casement's stellar record of service might have actually made this tactic work, or at least result in a lenient sentence. As it was, though, after a famous defense speech that took place from the dock, Casement was found guilty of treason and sentenced to die. But that's where things started to get a little bit messy. All the controversy comes in. So Casement, understandably, had a lot of friends, a lot of supporters from this long career as a British diplomat, you know, a a very celebrated British diplomat. And many influential people didn't want to see him die. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as you mentioned, organized a petition to appeal for clemency. So that's a good name to have in your corner. There was also a wild card among all of these high-profile appeals, and that was Irish-American. So Britain was deeply concerned that influential Irish-American politicians and businessmen wouldn't look so favorably on joining the war. You know, the U.S. was still neutral at this point. Wouldn't look favorably on joining the war effort if casement were executed. So this was serious business. You know, there was a lot at stake here, and it was decided to bring in some dirty tactics to deal with it. 
And these dirty tactics were made possible by something they'd actually had in their back pocket for a little while. Since Casement's arrest, actually, British authorities had had in their possession a set of secret diaries that had been left behind in a trunk in his London flat. And those diaries covered a span of years, and they contained lots of day-to-day notes. But they also contained sexually explicit entries that outed Casement as a homosexual who regularly pursued anonymous sex with young men and sometimes even teenagers. So both the defense and the prosecution knew of the so-called Black Diaries, but after the sentencing, Scotland Yard and the Foreign Office began circulating them among Casement's more prominent supporters. Many, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, quickly withdrew their support. Journalists also received excerpts. American politicians and diplomats got copies. The American ambassador to London warned the Secretary of State to avoid the diaries for their, quote, unspeakably filthy character. So the diaries really had their intended effect. Casement's support pretty much vanished, and he was executed August 3rd, 1916 in London, his body interred in a pit of quicklime. But debate over the diaries' use and their authenticity started almost immediately, Even the London Times, which supported the sentence, complained of the, quote, irrelevant, improper, and un-English campaign of inspired innuendo. A lot of, um, a lot of eyes in that (laughs) complaint. But, you know, there were people raising issues about the very use of the diaries. Others thought that releasing the diaries was more than just improper and in no way related to the crime of treason. They thought that they were actual forgeries that had been cooked up purposely to discredit Casement. And it didn't really help build confidence that after Casement's execution, the Home Office kept those diaries in almost total secrecy, even denying their existence in 1916. Plus, few could offer any indication other than the diaries that Casement had been a homosexual. Friends and family started offering up possible theories regarding the diaries' origins, even suggesting that they were crafted somehow from notes Casement had taken while preparing his Putumaya report. In 1959, however, the British Home Secretary allowed scholars to examine the diaries, and most agreed that the passages in question were written in Casement's hand. In 2002, a further study was done, led by Dr. Audrey Giles, and jointly funded by the BBC and the RTE, which is Ireland's national TV and radio broadcaster. After a forensic examination and handwriting analysis, she concluded that the five documents were, in fact, written by Casement. Which had been the common assessment by that point. Anyway, some people do still believe the documents are fake. I mean, we have a lot of angles to cover here, and some that we're not going to be able to cover, but some do still believe the documents are entirely fake. Some believe that parts are faked, um, especially those that seem more predatory, focus more on what today we might consider sexual tourism, or that some of the entries were written by casement, but they were written as kind of a fantasy. There's another side to this, too, though, people who have fully embraced that Casement did write the diaries. And according to Brian Lewis in the Journal of the History of Sexuality, many gay activists in Ireland have embraced their authenticity and almost taken up Casement as a second Oscar Wilde, a a famously Irish and famously gay man. In the 1960s, Casement's remains, which for some reason hadn't been dissolved by that quicklime yet, were returned to Ireland in a goodwill gesture from England. Prime Minister Harold Wilson called it a quote, satisfactory end to an unhappy chapter, and Casement was reinterred with full military honors in a state funeral. 
In March 2011, London Metropolitan Police returned casement sword and hat shortly before Queen Elizabeth's historic state visit to Ireland. They had been seized when casement was arrested and were, ironically, the same sword and hat used when he was knighted by George V. Over time, too, I mean, I think the returning the body, returning the hat suggests that there has been sort of a change in feelings about casement. But over time, it also seems like that traitor patriot debate has gotten a lot less rigid. And one of Casement's own relatives, Patrick Casement, talked with BBC Northern Ireland about how his family had dealt with their famous kinsman's legacy. And he said that at the time, at the time of Casement's trial and execution, his actions were considered by the family a real dishonor, since many of his relatives were at the time serving in World War One. And he said, quote, for them, it was an appalling disgrace on the family. Very, very difficult for them to live with. And I think that carried on for another generation. But my own generation, I think, are coming more to terms with it, looking at it in a much more objective way and seeing Sir Roger as the remarkable and interesting character that he was. And I mean, I think that that much is pretty hard to deny. He's certainly remarkable. He's certainly interesting with such a varied career and obviously with such strong opinions and passions. Yeah, it's interesting how time changes our perspective on things, and I think it'll be cool to see how his legacy kind of develops throughout the years after this, too. Certainly will. So I think that's probably a good time to transition to kind of a lighter listener mail. Yes, please. So this message is from Sarah, who is a Ph.D. candidate in art history and archaeology. And I chose this one because she is writing to us about the Brontes, another famous family of Irish descent. So Sarah wrote, you mentioned that the girls were sort of amateur artists. And although drawing was a skill that had been practiced by women for centuries, a late 18th century development made art making available to a much wider audience, the mass production of watercolor kits. These kits were small and inexpensive. People could take them out to the countryside and paint landscapes or use them in their homes. This is in stark contrast to the grand academies of art that traditionally excluded women, but still gave a broader audience more tools for making art. Um, so I thought that was a really neat thing, and you don't... <laughs> It's, it's at least hard for me to imagine a time when watercolor kits don't exist. That's true. But uh, it reminded me a little bit of our Van Gogh episode, where Van Gogh is like toting all these paints and his easel and his canvases out to paint his sunflowers, and the local kids are messing with him and thinking how practical a watercolor kit does sound. So it was nice to imagine the Brontes, after so much tragedy in their lives, just maybe roaming the moors with their watercolor kit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sending that, Sarah. And Sarah Dowdy, I've noticed that you often pick listener mail with your from people with your own name. <laughs> I never do that. I just want to point that out. We did have that one listener named Dublina. Went. She spelled it differently than you. That's true. But <laughs> did we read her letter? No, we didn't. Oh, no. But I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure that we both commented on it because it's yep. a rare occurrence. It's true. I promise I'm not purposefully seeking out <laughs> emails from Sarah's. It's just a cool well, I will. If there are any Dublinas out there, you can send me a letter and I'll purposely <laughs> pick it out and read it. Well, make sure you send her something good then. Yes. But regardless of what your name is, of course, you're always welcome to write to us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, which we check frequently, or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History. And as always, we have lots of articles for you to check out on all sorts of subjects on our website. It's www.HowStuffWorks.com. 
Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.